Thank you, worship band. Just, I always enjoy preaching after this worship band. Uh, not all are so easy to preach after. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, hey, uh, I know there are a number of you here for the first week uh, because you are students and you've just started classes and I wanted you to know that you are right at the end of a series. So I want to catch you up a little bit. We're doing the Lord's Prayer. We started three weeks ago and we're finishing up today. And uh, I, I, I could not end this series without sharing uh, a, a famous uh, humorous story that I've told before and many of you have heard before that has to do with the Lord's Prayer. And it has to do with uh, the Chicago Bears. Now, uh, how does the Lord's Prayer have to do with the NFL? Well, it does. Uh, and the Chicago Bears in the 1980s were probably one of the best teams ever uh, constructed. Uh, some of you, many of you were not born then, and your parents were probably not even married then. But uh, look it up. <laughs> you can Google it. Uh, not now, but later. Uh, and, and 1985, they, they won, the, they won the, the championship Super Bowl, and they lost one game. And they had a lot of uh, famous players like Walter Payton, Mike Singletary, Jim Mc, McMahon. But they had one that was famous more for how he looked than how he played, a guy by the name of William Perry, and they called him the refrigerator because he was so big. Um, and I don't know if you knew this, but NFL teams actually, on, because the games are on Sundays, most of them, they have chapels, and they will often have a chaplain for the team. And in one chapel that year, uh, Mike Ditka, who was the coach of the, the Bears, uh, asked William the Refrigerator Perry to lead the team at the beginning of chapel in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Jim McMahon, who was a wild and crazy guy, was sitting at the front next to the chaplain. And he leaned over and whispered, this is going to be so funny. I bet you 50 bucks the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. Now, the chaplain wasn't sure he should be taking bets on the Lord's Prayer. But he said, okay, I'll do it. So the fridge stood up and he began to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Jim McMahon shook his head reached into his pocket, pulled out 50 bucks and said, I was sure he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Think about it. Uh, we, we've talked, right? The Lord's Prayer is maybe the most quoted piece of Scripture in the Western world. But many people don't understand what it means. One writer said that prayer is one of the most fundamental practices of the Christian but also it's one of the least explored in the Christian community. See, if we're not careful, prayer becomes just a ritual. It's just something we say. We can fall into different traps when we pray. Sometimes we can try to use prayer to manipulate God. Other times we can use prayer as some sort of magical spell, treat God like a genie, say the right words and get your wishes fulfilled. Other times we use prayer to, prayer to put out our Christian avatar. Right? Here I am, a good Christian, because I'm praying. Look at me. See, our prayers, they need guiding. And our hearts, they need shaping. 
And the Lord's Prayer is intended to help us with both. It's not a cookie-cutting prayer. You don't just plug in the words at the right spots. It's a kingdom prayer. It's a right-side-up prayer helping us live a life in an upside-down world. So as we have been doing uh, these four weeks, I would ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can look at it on the screen. And we're going to stand, if you're able, and we're going to look together at the prayer. And we're going to read it together when we get there. Okay, so look at Matthew 6. I will start with verse 7. When you find it, you can stand. And I will read the first couple of verses. And then I'll have you join me with the prayer itself. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus is talking, Sermon on the Mount. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. So when you pray, Pray like this, together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us lot into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now some of you, especially if you're my era or not, my age or not, keep asking yourselves, what happened to the rest of the verse? All right? You know that in the King James, and New King James, there's a doxology at the end. It goes like this. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why don't we read that? And in fact, if you have a new international version or English standard version like we use on the screen, it's only in the footnotes. What's going on? Well, many of you know we don't have the original Greek manuscripts, right? We don't have the actual ones. We have copies. In fact, we have thousands of copies, old copies. So we can be sure most of the time what was in the original. But sometimes there are, dis- there are discussions because different copies have different things. The earliest and best copies of the Greek New Testament for Matthew 6 do not have the doxology. And actually, it's the later ones that do. And so scholars have suggested that what happened is some scribe added the doxology as a nice way to finish up the public reading. And he's probably drawn to it by a passage you would find in 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, you read, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens. And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Probably that was in the mind of that scribe as he added that doxology so when they read it, they would have something to end it with, which was common for Jewish prayers. But while it's not heretical, it's probably not how Jesus ended his prayer. 
He ended it at verse 13. And when you think about it, it, why? I mean, the doxology is upbeat, right? Amen, his is the kingdom. But Jesus ends, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. It's kind of a, it's kind of a downer. Right? Why does Jesus do that? Well, I think the answer is simple. He's teaching us how to pray. And he's teaching us how to pray right side up in an upside down world. He's modeling it for us. The first week we learned that kingdom prayer begins with a name. The second week, Jason taught us that prayer is learning to trust in the provider more than the provision. And last week from Phil, we learned that kingdom prayer is mercy-minded. And today, at verse 13, Jesus is teaching us that kingdom prayer is praying with realistic hope. We pray with realistic hope. First, kingdom prayer is utterly realistic. It's utterly realistic. I mean, in verse 13, you can feel the temperature change, can't you? The tone is different. I mean, up to that point, we've been trying to organize our lives around our Father who loves us and our King who rules We've been praying for our daily bread. We've been praying for forgiveness. But the next thing we know in verse 13, we're under assault. Temptations and tests and evil. Philip Ryken says we've prayed for food. We've prayed for forgiveness. But now we pray in our frailty. We prayed for daily provision. We prayed for daily pardon. But now we pray for daily protection utterly realistic the lord's prayer reminds us very stark terms the christian life is a journey and it's not just one that ascends continually it's one filled with ups and downs and ups and downs we're part of a larger drama a cosmic drama between good and evil between god and satan it's, it's like Jesus at the end of the prayer is taking us back to the beginning of Genesis 3 when Satan tempts for the first time God's creation. When he first starts to try to get us to live upside down, says, hey, Adam, Eve, God's way, <laughs> don't trust him. He's keeping you back. Try my way. And ever since then, He's been using the same pattern of seduction. Don't trust God's way. Live it out my way. Jesus is reminding us of that. Satan has not changed his strategies. We have a, live in a broken world that's shouting at us to live ways different from God. And we need deliverance from that. The forces of evil are still at large. And they do not relinquish their territory very easily. I am a dad, so I like war movies. Amen, dads? I love them. Not as much as I love my kids, but I love them. I love them because of the drama, good guys versus bad guys. You never have to doubt who they are. I love them because of action. But I think I love them most because for a couple of hours, 
I can't imagine what it's like to fight with your life on the line, the life of your buddies on the line. One of my favorites, as you see on the screen, is Saving Private Ryan. About the invasion of Normandy the first 15 minutes by the Allied troops in World War II. Even World War II vets have said that those first 15 minutes may be the most realistic war scenes ever put on film. The director, Steven Spielberg, he opens up with a shot of of boats, landing crafts. They're called Higgins boats. And they were taking the, the troops across the English channels, up and down, up and down to the beaches of France. And he takes us inside those boats. Up close and personal, we'll receive their faces. We, these guys who were waiting for that steel ramp to lower and to charge the beach. And we can see what they're doing. We, one guy's making the sign of a cross. Another one's taking his crucifix and giving it a kiss. My favorite is the sergeant who takes a big chaw of tobacco and just puts it up and back in his mouth. We all prepare for war in our own ways. But Spielberg shows us their face. He, he shows us their emotions, their determination, the focus, even, even the fear. <laughs> they're not lackadaisical. They're not nonchalant. They're not just going through the motions. It's not some joyride. They are deadly serious. Why? They're going to battle. The Apostle Paul describes the scene of our lives. And he does it in a way that's more vivid than anything Steven Spielberg could come up with. In Ephesians chapter 6, Here's how he describes it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and machine guns. I added that part. Uh, But against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And he ends in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The more seriously that I take the utter reality of the spiritual battle that I'm in, this cosmic battle between good and evil, the more seriously I will take prayer. That's what Paul is saying. If I feel a little urge, a little need to pray at all times and for all the saints, according to Paul, if I lack that urgent desperation to pray, then I am living apart from God's reality. We must remind ourselves, in this kingdom prayer, the steel ramp is already lowered. We're already on the beach. And the battle's intense. Not just out there, but also in here. 
In these two verses, Jesus is reminding us of our urgent need for prayer in this desperate battle. We should pray as if our lives depended on it because they do. First, lead us not into temptation. Now, this is to be, for such a simple phrase, sentence, just what, five words, it's kind of hard to get a grip on it. Um, if it. Just read it quickly, superficially. It sounds like there are times that God leads us into temptation. But that's not right. He doesn't lead us into sin. And what makes it also hard is that the word temptation can be translated test. It could be translated trial. And it could be translated temptation. So you can imagine the different scholars have the different feels for what this phrase, sentence, means and what Jesus meant. Sometimes when I get in that kind of situation, I find it best to figure out first what it doesn't mean. Okay? And there are some things we definitely know it doesn't mean. First, like I said, it it does not mean there are times that God does lead us into temptation. Because scripture is clear. God does not tempt us and he's never seen as the origin of evil. James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. In fact, later, James says we're tempted by our own foolish desires. So it can't be that he tempts us like that. Number two, it can't mean that we never face temptation or trials. The Bible is full of people who face temptation and trials. Guess what? Jesus faced temptation. Just a couple chapters before in Matthew 4. So it can't mean that. And third, it cannot mean that we are to avoid the testings of life. Testing in Scripture is presented often as a good and necessary thing in life. James tells us to rejoice in those times. God is a metalsmith, as one writer said. He applies the pressure. He turns up the heat. He does it to refine us in our faith through obedience. The psalmist prayed, prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. Why would Jesus be telling us to ask God for something not to take place that is for our good? Where does that leave us? Here's my best attempt. What is Jesus saying? Lead us not to temptation. Jesus is showing us that our prayer is not to prevent temptations and testings, but to preserve us in the face of them. I'll say it again. What he's saying in the first half of verse 13 is that we're not praying to, be, to prevent temptations and testing, but rather to be preserved in the face of them. Paul echoes that in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, trials are permitted, but only for our good. But still, don't be shocked when they come. Kingdom prayer is utterly realistic. Christians face tough times, just like everybody else. 
Kingdom prayer, utter realistic. Secondly, though, kingdom prayer delivers hope. Kingdom prayer delivers hope. Deliver us from evil. Those two lines, really, they go together. Back in the Old Testament, Hebrew poetry would often use something called parallelism, where you'd have two lines, Psalms and Proverbs, for example, and these two lines would actually work together to make the same point. They worked in parallel. And so some people think that Jesus is kind of alluding to that. He's using two lines that go together to make the same point. In fact, he's reinforcing and expanding with the second line on the first one. Deliver us from evil amplifies the idea of persevering us in the midst of temptation. You see, if we only had the first one, it would sound like we just want to avoid the circumstances of life. Just get me out of this. But the second one doesn't allow us to do that. You can't get out of it. You can't avoid it. But you can be delivered from it. They go together. Hope. Satan is the evil one that's being communicated about here. It's not just deliver us from evil. It's better said, deliver us from the evil one. He brings the testing. It's not just pervasive, it's personal. He's the schemer, as we said, starting back in Genesis 3. As we mentioned, he did it with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He's a schemer, he's a tempter, he's also an accuser. One of the most uh, interesting descriptions of Satan, by the way, there's a lot in the Bible about him. One of the most interesting descriptions is found in Revelation 12, where actually uh, John is getting a vision for when Satan is finally defeated. But I want you to hear how he's described. So John writes, Revelation 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He's an accuser. Why? He wants to paralyze us in our shame. He wants us to keep us from obedience and our guilt. We think we know if we confess our sins, God forgives. But Satan will show up at that time of confession and say, oh, no, you're not. You've, you've gone too far this time. You, you've, you've gone over the line. See, there's a limit to God's statute of forgiveness, and, and, and you've gone beyond it. And he starts to weigh us down with that guilt. With the, and they actually, right, they come in whispers, back of your mind. God won't forgive you. He's relentless, persistent, crafty, He's subtle. Always he's described in Scripture. When my daughter Claire was two, she used to like to cuddle. Don't, don't. You're 20 years ago. But she used to like to sing a song. And her favorite song was Jesus Loves Me. So I remember, I can still remember, I was living in Michigan, rocking her in this white rocker and singing that song with her. And all of a sudden I kind of thought, Scott, I don't think you believe that song. I was a youth pastor. What? You don't believe it? Jesus? You believe in Jesus? That's why we come to church. He loves. We believe that. John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Me. 
That was the word that was hard to believe. You see, I could believe Jesus loved the world, but how does he love some sinner like me who keeps messing up all the time, who knows down deep he's a fraud? How does Jesus love me? That's the accuser at work. It's exactly how he works. How do you know Jesus loves you? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. My Bible tells me in 1 John 1, 9, that when I confess my sins, God is faithful, but he's also just to forgive my sins. Don't miss the word just. He's righteous to do it. Why? Not because of me, but because of Jesus. See, he took all my sins, and he took all my guilt. I can't have too many for God to handle. He's still just to forgive me because Jesus took it all. Don't let Satan accuse you of that and put that on your back. Jesus took it off your back. He loves to paralyze us. He's a schemer. We need to acknowledge through this prayer, that there's something going on in our world that needs to be resisted. And I want you to know that Satan is strong, but he's not infinitely strong. He's a creature. Jesus delivers us. The cross has made that clear. Satan is the tempter. Jesus is the deliverer. And the Lord's prayer is very honest about that. It's full of hope. A hope that is founded in the person of Christ. You see, not long after Jesus preached that prayer, or pre- and prayed the prayer, he, uh, he was on the cross. And it was on the cross that that delivery took place. He paid the penalty for our sin. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death, the curse. He delivered us from everything Satan could throw at us. And Jesus in this prayer is taking head on the tension, though, of living still in a broken world, even though the victory is assured. In fact, Jesus lived that broken world. That tension of knowing that God's kingdom is coming, but yet not getting the full taste of it. That's where we are right now, the already but not yet. The Lord's Prayer points that out and it also talks to us about how we see life's valleys how we see life's tests and how we see life's trials those are the times we learn to lean on christ those are the times we learn that we cannot deliver ourselves only he can that's how we learn to hope to yearn for the day when all the exams will be over i was talking to a colleague about this and he said scott sometimes the best prayer i have in the morning is lord Help me to struggle well today in the hope of your deliverance. The Lord's Prayer will help you find that. Now, the Bible is the first place we go to understand our hope. There's another book that's real helpful. It's called, actually, The Lord of the Rings. It's a book of fiction. But in this book of fiction... There are some illustrations of what God is doing. Now, some of you have seen the movie, but you haven't read the book. Now, I'm a hypocrite because I haven't read it either. <laughs> my wife's read it and my kids have read it. 
And they pointed me to a scene in the book that captures the essence of realistic hope. And I wanted to read it for you. It's, it's near the end. It comes after the great battle, after the ring has been disposed. Evil has been vanquished. And now Sam, wise Ganji, the real hero of the story, is sleeping. He's worn out. Gandalf, the wizard, comes to wake him up. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? Gandalf said. Sam lay back. He just stared with open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. But at last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened in the world? Gandalf said, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter and the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But Sam himself, he burst into tears. Then as sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. And laughing, Sam sprang from his bed. How do I feel? I don't know. I I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. Well, all that is sad come untrue. Sermon week at my house is a family affair. And my wife and my kids, especially when they're around, kind of help me think it through. And one of my sons yesterday sent me an email as he was reflecting on that scene in the Lord's Prayer. And here's, here's what he wrote. He said, at first glance, deliver us from evil. Those words appear painful and sobering. They hearken to the vileness of our world the evil that's in it, and the necessity for us to be purged from it. I've taken a big gulp of medicine. Both of which are true in a way, but neither are the end or the ideal of Jesus' idea for us. There's another way to take these words, deliver us from evil, as the culmination of Jesus' hope when it's brought to life. At that moment, on the day of days, when those words are fully realized, when we are fully and finally and forever delivered from evil. From that moment, there will be no need to pray, deliver us from evil. Because God's love will have broken the deepest curse. We are delivered and all the sad things have come untrue. The end of hope is now fully joy. That is realistic hope. Lord, thank you. It seems like, well, it's true. Every time we open your word, we are reminded that 
you know the innermost parts of us. <laughs> it, your word pierces us. It's like a light showing us what life really is like. It rings true because it is true. And I just thank you for Jesus' words, his prayer. That models for us how we are to come to you in a world that is so upside down. Thank you.